So, mere moments ago, or a week ago, years ago, depending on your listening patterns, we read chapter 16 of Jane Eyre, and now we're about to read chapter 17. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. I read the odd chapters, so this is my week. Mm -hmm. Which means that I'll give you the very brief recap of last week. Last week, Jane was thinking about why Grace Poole, potential murderer, was getting off scot-free. Attempted, at least, at the very least. At the very least. Uh, Why she was getting off scot-free in Thornfield Hall. She had a lot of internality about it. She wanted to talk to Mr. Rochester. She waited patiently for that guy to, like, show up in the schoolroom or, like, call her down to the fire for an after-dinner tete-a-tete. Lo and behold, it never happens. The tete-a-tete that she does have is with Miss Fairfax, who tells her that Mr. Rochester has absconded and won't be back for quite some time. He's hanging out with a beautiful woman. And a colonel. (laughs) And a colonel. A beautiful woman named Blanche, who is effervescent and gorgeous. Jane spends... Built like a swan. Built like a a Grecian swan. But like with the head of a poodle. (laughs) So many curls. Uh, Jane spends an entire evening in self-flagellation, depicts herself in a crayon portrait depicts the beautiful Blanche in all of her prettiest hues, puts the portraits next to each other, stares at it, and she's like, Mr. Rochester will never love you because you are plain. And then she feels better, and it gives her this like internal fortitude to face the future without having Mr. Rochester as her imagined paramour. Yeah, being in love is hard. Doesn't get easier, but I will tell you... Doesn't get easier. Having the outlook and prospects of Jane Eyre makes it even harder. And that's why we're still talking about this book uh, in the year 2021. All right. Are you ready for chapter 17? I am. A week passed, and no news arrived of Mr. Rochester. Ten days, and still he did not come. Mrs. Fairfax said she should not be surprised if he were to go straight from the Lees to London, and thence to the continent, and not show his face again at Thornfield for a year to come. He had not unfrequently quitted it, in a manner quite as abrupt and unexpected. When I heard this, I was beginning to feel a strange chill and failing at the heart. I was actually permitting myself to experience a sickening sense of disappointment. But rallying my wits and recollecting my principles, I at once called my sensations to order, and it was wonderful how I got over the temporary blunder. How I cleared up the mistake of supposing Mr. Rochester's movements a matter in which I had any cause to take a vital interest. Not that I humbled myself by slavish notion of inferiority, on the contrary, I just said, you have nothing to do with the master of Thornfield. Further than to receive the salary he gives you for teaching his protege, and to be grateful for such a respectful and kind treatment as, if you do your duty, you have a right to expect at his hands. Be sure that is the only tie he seriously acknowledges between you and him. So don't make him the object of your fine feelings, your raptures, agonies, and so forth. He is not of your order. Keep to your caste and be too self-respecting to lavish the love of the whole heart, soul, and strength where such a gift is not wanted and would be despised. Kind of a female empowerment, right? If he doesn't love you anymore, then walk your fine ass out the door and only speak to him on the condition of raising his protege and teaching her English. I went on with my day's business tranquilly, but ever and anon, vague suggestion kept wandering across my brain 
of reasons why I should quit Thornfield. And I kept involuntarily framing advertisements and pondering conjectures about new situations. These thoughts I did not think it necessary to check. They might germinate and bear fruit if they could. Mr. Rochester had been absent upward of a fortnight when the post brought Mrs. Fairfax a letter. It is from the master, said she, as she looked at the direction. Now, I suppose we shall know whether we are to expect his return or not. And while she broke the seal and perused the document, I went on taking my coffee. We were at breakfast. It was hot, and I attributed that circumstance a fiery glow which suddenly rose to my face. When my hand shook, why my hand shook, and why I involuntarily spilled half the contents of my cup into my saucer, I did not choose to consider. Well, I sometimes think we are too quiet, but we run a chance of being busy enough now, for a little while at least, said Mrs. Fairfax, still holding the note before her spectacles. Ere I permitted myself to request an explanation, I tied the string of Adele's pinafore, which happened to be loose, having helped her also to another bun and refilled her mug with milk. I said nonchalantly, Mr. Rochester is not likely to return soon, I suppose. Very cool. V chill. Very chill. Mr. Rochester is not likely to return soon, I suppose. Mr. Rochester is not soon, I suppose. It's like, I don't know what's in that letter. Indeed he is. In three days, he says. That will be next Thursday. And not alone either. I don't know how many of the fine people at the Lees are coming with him. He sends directions for all the best bedrooms to be prepared, and the library and drawing rooms are to be cleared out. And I am to get more kitchen hands from the George Inn at Millcock, and from wherever else I can, and the ladies will bring their maids and the gentlemen their valets, so we shall have a full house of it. Mrs. Fairfax swallowed her breakfast and hastened away to commence operations. The three days were as she had foretold, busy enough. I had thought all the rooms at Thornfield beautifully clean and well arranged, but it appears I was mistaken. Three women were got to help, and such scrubbing, such brushing, such washing of the paint and beating of the carpets, such taking down and putting up of pictures, such polishing of mirrors and lusters, such lighting of fires in bedrooms, and airing of sheets and feather beds on hearths, I never beheld, either before or since. Adele ran wild in the midst of it, preparations for company and the prospect of their arrival seemed to throw her into ecstasies. She would have Sophie to look over all her toilettes, as she called frocks, to furbish up any that were passes, and to air and arrange the new. For herself, she did nothing but caper about in front of chambers, jumping on and off the bedsteads and lie on the mattresses piled up, bolsters and pillows before the enormous fires roaring in the chimneys. From school duties, she was exonerated. Mrs. Fairfax had pressed me into her service, and I was all day in the storeroom helping, or hindering, her and the cook, learning to make custards and cheesecakes and French pastry to truss game and garnish dessert dishes. The party were expected to arrive on Thursday afternoon in time for dinner at six. That feels quite early. No kidding. This might be an era when, like, dinner and supper were two separate things. That could be, like, dinner is drinks and you don't dress formally until eight. Yeah. During the intervening period, I had no time to nurse Chimera, and, I believe, I was as active and gay as anybody, Adele expected. Still, now and then, I received a damping check to my cheerfulness, and was, in spite of myself, thrown back on the region of doubts and portents, and dark conjectures. This was when I had a chance to see the third-story staircase door, which of late had always been kept locked open slowly and give passage to the form of Grace Poole in prim cap, white apron, and handkerchief. 
And when I watched her glide along the gallery, her quiet tread muffled in a list slipper, when I saw her look into the bustling topsy-turvy bedrooms, just say a word, perhaps, to the char woman about the proper way to polish a grate or clean a marble mantelpiece, or take stains from papered walls, and then pass on. She would thus descend to the kitchen once a day, eat her dinner, smoke a moderate pipe on the hearth, and go back carrying her pot of porter with her for her private solace in her own gloomy upper haunt. Only one hour in the 24 did she pass with her fellow servants below. All the rest of her time she spent in some low-sealed oaken chamber of the third story, where she sat and sewed and probably laughed drearily to herself, as companionless as a prisoner in his dungeon. The strangest thing of all was that not a soul in the house except me noticed her habits or seemed to marvel at them. No one discussed her position or enjoyment. No one pitied her solitude or isolation. I once, indeed, overheard a part of a dialogue between Leah and one of the charwomen, of which Grace formed the subject. Leah had been saying something I had not caught, and the charwoman remarked, she gets good wages, I guess. Yes, said Leah. I wish I had as good. Not that mine are to complain of. There's no stinginess at Thornfield. But they're not one-fifth of the sum Mrs. Poole receives. And she's laying by. She goes every quarter to the bank at Millcote. I should not wonder what she has saved enough to keep her independent if she liked to leave. But I suppose she just got used to the place. And then she's not 40 yet and strong and able for anything. It's too soon for her to give up business. She's a good hand, I dare say, said the charwoman. Ah, she understands what she has to do, nobody better, rejoined Leah significantly. And it is not everyone could fill her shoes, not for all the money she gets. That it is not, was the reply. I wonder whether Master, the charwoman, was going on. But here Leah turned and perceived me, and she instantly gave her companion a nudge. Doesn't she know? I heard the woman whisper. Leah shook her head, and the conversation was, of course dropped. All I had gathered from it amounted to this, that there was a mystery at Thornfield, and that from participation in that mystery, I was purposely excluded. It's only a mystery to you, Jane. Is a mystery to one person still a mystery? Yes, because we are in first person, and thus it is a mystery. Sure, in a literary sense. I wondered too, like, because she doesn't do this. She doesn't, she doesn't go to Rochester and ask straight out. She doesn't go to Miss Fairfax and ask straight out. And she doesn't ask anybody in the town. What would she ask? What's up with Grace Poole? But I think she's asked that before. And Miss Fairfax... Miss Fairfax has lied to her. You're right. And Rochester has also obfuscated on purpose. And based on Leah and the charwoman, it doesn't seem like anybody would tell her much of anything. But I also wonder why. Like, why wouldn't Leah, like, straight up warn her since her bed is close to the third floor stair and clearly the danger is present and active. Well, I think this speaks to the interesting position cast-wise of the governess, right? Like, they definitely don't want to tell, speaking as abstractly as possible, they definitely don't want anyone of the class to know what's going on at Thornfield. And to the charwoman and Leah and to Miss Fairfax, Jane would be a part of that class, right? She's definitely got connections that the rest of them don't have. And perhaps their employer explicitly told them not to tell the governess. That could be. And like their position then would be endangered. It also doesn't seem like Jane really has even the correct framework to even like ask the question. And you're right to say that like 
it's very clear that the master of Thornfield doesn't want this to get about. So it seems to me that the people in the town wouldn't know. So like the only people that she could ask are the downstairs employees who keep her at a distance with the exception of Miss Fairfax, who's already a liar, as established. Well, we haven't fully established she's a liar yet, but... (laughs) She's not a truth teller. She's perhaps not entirely obviously, but she is hiding something. Thursday came. All work had been completed the previous evening. Carpets were laid down, bed hangings festooned, love that word, radiant white counterpanes spread, toilet tables arranged, furniture rubbed, (laughs) flowers piled in vases. Both chambers and saloons looked as fresh and bright as hands could make them. The hall, too, was scoured, and the great carved clock as well as the steps and banisters of the staircase were polished to the brightness of glass. In the dining room, the sideboard flashed resplendent with plate. In the drawing room and boudoir, vases of exotics bloomed on all sides. Afternoon arrived, Mrs. Fairfax assumed her best black satin gown, her gloves, and her gold watch, for it was her part to receive the company, to conduct the ladies to their rooms, etc. Adele, too, would be dressed, though I thought she had little chance of being introduced to the party, that day at least. However, to please her, I allowed Sophie to apparel her in one of her short, full muslin frocks. For myself, I had no need to make any change. I should not be called upon to quit my sanctum of the schoolroom. For a sanctum, it was now becoming to me a very pleasant refuge in a time of trouble. It had been a mild, serene spring day, one of those days which, toward the end of March or the beginning of April, rise shining over the earth as heralds of summer. It was drawing to an end now, but the evening was even warm, and I sat at work in the schoolroom with the window open. Gets late said Mrs. Fairfax, entering in a rustling state. I'm glad I ordered dinner an hour after the time Mr. Rochester mentioned, for it is past six now. I have sent John down to the gates to see if there is anything on the road. One can see a long way from thence in the direction of Millcott. She went to the window. Here he is, said she. Well, John, any news? They're coming, ma'am, was the answer. They'll be here in ten minutes. Adele flew to the window. I followed, taking care to stand on one side so that, screened by the curtain, I could see without being seen. Once again, like, Jane! (laughs) Just like uh, Rochester did with his previous paramour. Adele flew to the window. I followed, taking care to stand on one side so that, screened by the curtain, I could see without being seen. The ten minutes John had given seemed very long, but at last wheels were heard. Four equestrians galloped up the drive, and after them came two open carriages. Fluttering veils and waving plumes filled the vehicles. Two of the cavaliers were young, dashing-looking gentlemen. The third was Mr. Rochester, on his black horse, Mesror, the name of an executioner in the Arabian Nights. Oh, pleasant association. Pilot bounding before him. At his side rode a lady, and he and she were the first of the party. Her purple riding habit almost swept to the ground. Her veil streamed long on the breeze, mingling with its transparent folds and gleaming through them rich raven ringlets. Miss Ingram, exclaimed Mrs. Fairfax, and away she hurried to her post below. The cavalcade, following the sweep of the drive, quickly turned the angle of the house, and I lost side of it. Adele now petitioned to go down, but I took her on my knee and gave her to understand that she must not, 
on any account think of venturing in sight of the ladies, either now or at any other time, unless expressly sent for. That Mr. Rochester would be very angry, etc. Some natural tears she shed on being told this, but as I began to look very grave, she consented at last to wipe them. How sad to be Adele. Seriously, also that illusion, some natural tears she shed, is an illusion from Paradise Lost when Adam and Eve leave Eden. Well, if you think about it, this is the first time they've entertained at Thornfield since Adele has come there, and it is the first time the parameters of her new world are are being made explicit to her. So that is a very fitting reference. And it hasn't even begun. Adele has this sad little life. Talk about B plots and C plots. Sad ladies all over the place. Joyous stir was now audible in the hall. Gentlemen's deep tones and ladies' silvery accents blent harmoniously together, and distinguishable above all, though not loud, was the sonorous voices of the master of Thornfield Hall, welcoming his fair and gallant guests under his roof. Then light steps ascended the stairs, and there was a tripping through the gallery, and soft cheerful laughs, and opening and closing doors, and for a time, a hush. Elle changeante de toilette, said Adele, who listening attentively had followed every movement, and she sighed. Chez maman, said she, quand il y avait du monde, je les souvais partout au salon et leur chambre. Souvent je regardais les femmes de chambre coiffées et habillées la dame, et c'était si amusante comme cela en apprend. At Mama's, when there were a lot of people, I would follow them everywhere, in the drawing room, into their rooms. Often I would watch the maids dress the ladies and do their hair, and it was so much fun. That's how you learn. Don't you feel hungry, Adele? Yes, of course! It's been five or six hours since we've eaten. Well now, while the ladies are in their rooms, I will venture down and get you something to eat. And issuing from my asylum with precaution... I sought a back stairs, which conducted directly to the kitchen. All in that region was fire and commotion. The soup and fish were in the last stage of projection, and the cook hung over crucibles in a frame of mind and body threatening spontaneous combustion. <laughs> projection and crucibles refer humorously to the transmutation of metals in alchemy. Let us allow a small chuckle for the joke. ha <laughs> ha. In the servants' hall, two coachmen and three gentlemen's gentlemen stood or sat around the fire. The Abigails, I suppose, were upstairs with their mistresses. The new servants had been hired from Millcott, were bustling about everywhere. Threading this chaos, I at last reached the larder, where I took possession of a cold chicken, a roll of bread, some tarts, a plate or two, and a knife and fork. With this booty, I made a hasty retreat. I had regained the gallery and was shutting the back door behind me when an accelerated hum warned me that the ladies were about to issue from their chambers. I could not proceed to the schoolroom without passing some of their doors and running the risk of being surprised with my cargo of victuallage. So I stood still at the end, which, being windowless, was dark. Quite dark now, for the sun was set in twilight gathering. So she's just hiding in the dark end of a hallway, clutching a chicken. <laughs> just their little foods. She's such a fucking creep. It's just like, I hope they don't see me. The important prop for me is the whole chicken. There are a few things more silly looking than a whole roast chicken, especially outside of context. Just a woman standing in shadow <laughs> holding one next to your bedroom. 
Presently, the chambers gave up their fair tenants one after another. Each came out gaily and airily with dress that gleamed lustrous through the dusk. For a moment they stood grouped together at the other extremity of the gallery, conversing in a key of sweet subdued vivacity. They then descended the staircase, almost as noiselessly as a bright mist rolls down a hill. Their collective appearance had left me an impression of high-born elegance, such as I had never before received. I found Adele peeping through the schoolroom door, which she held ajar. What beautiful ladies! cried she in English. Oh, I wish I might go to them. Do you think Mr. Rochester will send for us and by and by after dinner? No, indeed I don't. Mr. Rochester has something else to think about. Never mind the ladies tonight. Perhaps you will see them tomorrow. Here's your dinner. She was really hungry, so the chicken and tarts served to divert her attention for a time. It was well I secured this forage, for both she, I, and Sophie, to whom I conveyed a share of our repast, poor Sophie, seriously, would have run a chance of getting no dinner at all. Everyone downstairs was too much engaged to think of us. The dessert was not carried out till after nine, and at ten footmen were still running to and fro with trays and coffee cups. I allowed Adele to sit up much later than usual, for she declared she could not possibly go to sleep while the doors kept opening and shutting below and people bustling about. Besides, she added, a message might possibly come from Mr. Rochester when she was undressed. Et alors, quel dommage! I told her stories as long as she would listen to them, and then for a change, I took her out into the gallery. The hall lamp was now lighted, and it amused her to look over the balustrade and watch the servants passing backward and forward. When the evening was far advanced, a sound of music issued from the drawing room, whither the piano had been removed. Adele and I sat down on the top of the stairs to listen. Presently, a voice blent with the rich tones of the instrument. It was a lady who sang, and very sweet her notes were. The solo over, a duet followed, and then a glee, a joyous conversational murmur filled up the intervals. I listened long. Suddenly, I discovered that my ear was wholly intent on analyzing the mingled sounds and trying to discriminate amid the confusion of accents those of Mr. Rochester. And when it caught them, which it soon did, it found a further task in framing the tones, rendered by distance inarticulate, into words. The clock struck eleven. I looked at Adele, whose head leaned against my shoulder. Her eyes were waxing heavy, so I took her up in my arms and carried her off to bed. It was near one before the gentlemen and ladies sought their chambers. The next day was as fine as its predecessor. It was devoted by the party to an excursion to some site in the neighborhood. They set out early in the forenoon some on horseback, the rest in carriages. I witnessed both the departure and the return. Miss Ingram, as before, was the only lady equestrian, and, as before, Mr. Rochester galloped by her side. The two rode a little apart from the rest. I pointed out this circumstance to Miss Fairfax, who was standing at the window with me. You said it was not likely they should think of being married, said I, but you see Mr. Rochester evidently prefers her to any of the other ladies. Yes, I dare say. No doubt he admires her. And she him, I added. Look how she leans her head toward him as if she were conversing confidentially. I wish I could see her face. I have never had a glimpse of it yet. You will see her this evening, answered Mrs. Fairfax. I happened to remark to Mr. Rochester how much Adele wished to be introduced to the ladies, and he said, oh, let her come into the drawing room after dinner and request Miss Eyre to accompany her. Yes, he said that from mere politeness. I need not go, I am sure. 
I answered. Well, I observed to him that you were as unused to company. I did not think you would like appearing before so gay a party. All strangers. And he replied in his quick way, Nonsense! If she objects, tell her it was my particular wish. And if she resists, say I shall come and fetch her in case of contumacy. I don't know that word. Me neither. Let's Google it. Okay. Contumacy. Contumacy. Is that how you pronounce it? I have literally no idea. I've never heard this word spoken aloud. I also don't know how to... I think contumacy. Contumacy. Stubborn refusal to obey or comply with authority, especially a court order or summons. Oh. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) I'll allow it. (laughs) I will not give him that trouble, I answered. I will go, if no better may be, but I don't like it. Shall you be there, Mrs. Fairfax? No, I pleaded off, and he admitted my plea. I'll tell you how to manage so as to avoid the embarrassment of making a formal entrance, which is the most disagreeable part of the business. You must go into the drawing room while it is empty before the ladies leave the dining table. Choose your seat in any quiet nook you like. You need not stay long after the gentlemen come in, unless you please. Just let Mr. Rochester see you are there, and then slip away. Nobody will notice you. Just the wanton cruelty... Will these people remain long, do you think? Perhaps two or three weeks, certainly not more. After the Easter recess, Sir George Lynn, who was lately elected member for Millcott, will have to go up to town and take his seat. A day, sir, and Mr. Rochester will accompany him. It surprises me that he has already made so protracted a stay at Thornfield. It was with some trepidation that I perceived the hour approach when I was to repair with my charge to the drawing room. Adele had been in a state of ecstasy all day after hearing she was to be presented to the ladies in the evening, and it was not till Sophie commenced the operation of dressing her that she sobered down. Then the importance of the process quickly steadied her, and by the time she had her curls arranged in well-smooth, drooping clusters, her pink satin frock put on, her long sash tied, and her lace mittens adjusted, she looked as grave as any judge. No need to warn her not to disarrange her attire when she was dressed. She sat demurely down in her little chair, taking care previously to lift up the satin skirt for fear she should crease it, and assured me she would not stir thence till I was ready. This I quickly was. My best dress, the silver-gray one purchased for Miss Temple's wedding and never worn since, was soon put on. My hair was soon smoothed, my sole ornament, the pearl brooch, soon assumed. We descended. I love the vision of little Adele in her frothy cupcake dress becoming gravely serious about the business of being in company. I love Adele, true hero of the novel. Fortunately, there was another entrance to the drawing room than that through the saloon where they were all seated at dinner. We found the apartment vacant, a large fire burning silently on the marble hearth, and wax candles shining in bright solitude amid the exquisite flowers with which the tables were adorned. The crimson curtain hung before the arch, slight as an apparition this drapery formed from the party in the adjoining saloon. They spoke in so low a key that nothing of their conversation could be distinguished beyond a soothing murmur. Adele, who appeared to be still under the influence of a most solemnizing impression, sat down without a word on the footstool, I pointed out to her. I retired to a window seat, and taking a book from the table near, I endeavored to read. Adele brought her stool to my feet. Ere long, she touched my knee. What is it, Adele? May I take just one of these magnificent flowers? 
Just to add a finishing touch to my outfit. You think too much of your toilette, Adele, but you may have a flower. And I took a rose from the vase and fastened it in her sash. She sighed a sigh of ineffable satisfaction, as if her cup of happiness were now full. I turned my face away to conceal a smile I could not suppress. There was something ludicrous as well as painful in the little Parisienne's earnest and innate devotion to matters of dress. If Mr. Rochester comes in and says something like she's gilded the lily, I'm going to be real upset. I I know. My every thought is with Adele in this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, don't you dare, Mr. Rochester. Don't you dare. I love that she stayed on the footstool but moved it. She's so clever. She's so clever, but not at all like... She's guileless, you know? She's such a delight. A soft sound of rising now became audible. The curtain was swept back from the arch. Through it appeared the dining room, with its lighted luster pouring down light on the silver and glass of a magnificent dessert service. Covering a long table, a band of ladies stood in the opening. They entered, and the curtain fell behind them. There were but eight, yet... Somehow, as they flocked in, they gave the impression of a much larger number. Some of them were very tall, many were dressed in white, and all had a sweeping amplitude of array that seemed to magnify their persons as a mist magnifies the moon. I rose and curtsied to them. One or two bent their heads in return. The others only stared at me. This is the second time the ladies have been referred to as a mist. They dispersed about the room, reminding me, by the lightness and buoyancy of their movements, of a flock of white plumy birds. To say chickens. Some of them threw themselves in half-reclining positions on the sofas and ottomans. Some bent over the tables and examined the flowers and books. The rest gathered in a group around the fire, all talked in a low but clear tone, which seemed habitual to them. I knew their names afterwards, and may as well mention them now. First, there was Mrs. Eshton and two of her daughters. She had evidently been a handsome woman, and was well-preserved still. Of her daughters, the eldest, Amy, was rather little, naive and childlike in face and manner, and piquant in form. Her white muslin dress and blue sash became her well. The second, Louisa, was taller and more elegant in figure, with a pretty, with a very pretty face of the order the French term minois chiffonnet. Both sisters were as fair as lilies. Minois chiffonnet means a funny little face. Like the Audrey Hepburn movie, Funny Face? Like, is that what we're... Yeah, maybe. I love that, funny little face. Immediately, an image comes to mind, that phrase. Lady Lynn was a large and stout personage of about 40, very erect, very haughty looking, richly dressed in a satin robe of changeful sheen. Her dark hair shone glossily under the shade of an azure plume and within the circlet of a band of gems. Mrs. Colonel Dent was less showy, but I thought more ladylike. Jane Wood. She had a slight figure, a pale gentle face, and fair hair. Her black satin dress, her scarf of rich foreign lace, and her pearl ornaments pleased me better than the rainbow radiance of the titled dame. But the three most distinguished, partly perhaps because they were the tallest figures of the band, were the dowager Lady Ingram and her daughters, Blanche and Mary. They were all three of the loftiest stature of women. The dowager might be between 40 and 50. Her shape was still fine, her hair, by candlelight at least, still black, 
Her teeth, too, were still apparently perfect. Most people would have termed her a splendid woman of her age, and so she was, no doubt, physically speaking. But then there was an expression of almost insupportable haughtiness in her bearing and countenance. She had Roman features, and a double chin disappearing into a throat like a pillar. <laughs> These features appeared to me not only inflated and darkened, but even furrowed with pride. The chin was sustained by the same principle, in a position of almost preternatural erectness. She had likewise a fierce and a hard eye. It reminded me of Mrs. Reed's. She mouthed her words in speaking. Her voice was deep, its inflections very pompous, very dogmatical, very intolerable. In short, a crimson velvet robe and a shawl turban of some gold wrought Indian fabric invested her, I suppose she thought, with a truly imperial dignity. Blanche and Mary were of equal stature, straight and tall as poplars. Mary was too slim for her height, but Blanche was molded like a Diana. I regarded her, of course, with special interest. First, I wished to see whether her appearance accorded with Mrs. Fairfax's description. Secondly, whether it at all resembled the fancy miniature I had painted of her. And thirdly, it will out whether it were such as I should fancy likely to suit Mr. Rochester's taste. As far as person went, she answered point for point, both to my picture and Mrs. Fairfax's description. The noble bust, the sloping shoulders, the graceful neck, the dark eyes, and black ringlets were all there. But her face? Her face was like her mother's. A youthful, unfurrowed likeness. The same low brow, the same high features, the same pride. It was not, however, so saturnine a pride. She laughed continually. Her laugh was satirical, and so was the habitual expression of her arched and haughty lip. Genius is said to be self-conscious. I cannot tell whether Miss Ingram was a genius, but she was self-conscious. Remarkably self-conscious indeed. She entered into a discourse on botany with the gentle Mrs. Dent. It seems Mrs. Dent was not studied, that science, though, as she said, she liked flowers, especially wild ones. Air quotes. Miss Ingram had, and she ran over its vocabulary with an air. I presently perceived she was, what is vernacularly termed, trailing Mrs. Dent, that is, playing on her ignorance. Her trail might be clever, but it was decidedly not good-natured. She played, her execution was brilliant. She sang, her voice was fine, she talked French apart to her mama, and she talked it well, with fluency and with a good accent. Mary had milder and more open countenance than Blanche, softer features too, and a skin some shades fairer. Miss Ingram was dark as a Spaniard. But Mary was deficient in life. Her face lacked expression, her eye luster. She was nothing to say, and having once taken her seat, remained fixed like a statue in its niche. The sisters were both attired in spotless white. And did I now think Miss Ingram such a choice as Mr. Rochester would be likely to make? I could not tell. I did not know his taste in female beauty. If he liked the majestic, she was the very type of majesty. Then she was so accomplished, sprightly. Most gentlemen would admire her, I thought, and that he did admire her. I already seemed to have obtained proof. To remove the last shade of doubt, it remained but to see them together. You are not to suppose, reader, that Adele has all this time been sitting motionless on the stool at my feet. No, when the ladies entered, she rose, advanced to meet them, made a stately reverence, and said with gravity, Bonjour, mes âmes. And Miss Ingram looked down at her with a mocking air and exclaimed, Oh, what a little puppet! Lady Lynn had remarked, 
It is Mr. Rochester's ward, I suppose, the little French girl he was speaking of. Mrs. Dent had kindly taken her hand and given her a kiss. Amy and Louisa Eshton had cried out simultaneously, What a love of a child! And then they had called her to a sofa where she now sat ensconced between them, chattering alternatively in French and broken English, absorbing not only the young lady's attention, but that of Mrs. Eshton and Lady Lynn, and getting spoiled to her heart's content. At last, coffee is brought in, and the gentlemen are summoned. I sit in the shade, if any shade there be in this brilliantly lit apartment. The window curtain half hides me. Again the arch yawns. They come. The collective appearance of the gentlemen, like that of the ladies, is very imposing. They are all consumed in black. Most of them are tall, some young. Henry and Frederick Lynn are very dashing sparks indeed, and Colonel Dent is a fine soldierly man. Mr. Eshton, the magistrate of the district, is gentlemanlike. His hair is quite white, his eyebrows and whiskers still dark, which gives him something of the appearance of a Père Nobel de Theatre, a distinguished old gentleman of the kind found in the theater. Lord Ingram, like his sisters, is very tall. Like them also, he is handsome, but he shares Mary's apathetic and listless look. He seems to have more length of limb and vivacity of blood or vigor of brain. He's the only one who gets bashed. She doesn't seem too skeptical about the old man's black eyebrows, right? In the same way she was of Miss Ingram's. And where is Mr. Rochester? He comes in last. I am not looking at the arch, yet I see him enter. I try to concentrate my attention on these netting needles, on the meshes of the purse I am forming. I wish to think only of the work I have in my hands to see only the silver beads and silk threads that lie in my lap, whereas I distinctly behold his figure, and I inevitably recall the moment when I last saw it, just after I had rendered him what he deemed an essential service, and he, holding my hand and looking down on my face, surveyed me with eyes that revealed a heart full and eager to overflow, and whose emotions I had a part. How near I had approached him at that moment. What had occurred since calculated to change his and my relative positions. Yet now, how distant, how far estranged we were. So far estranged that I did not expect him to come and speak to me. I did not wonder when, without looking at me, he took a seat at the other side of the room and began conversing with some of the ladies. No sooner did I see that his attention was riveted on them, and that I might gaze without being observed, than my eyes were drawn involuntarily to his face. I could not keep their lids under control. They would rise, and the irids would fix on him. I looked, and had an acute pleasure in looking. Precious, yet poignant pleasure pure gold with a steely point of agony, a pleasure like what the thirst-perishing man might feel, who knows the well to which he has crept is poisoned, yet stoops and drinks divine draughts nevertheless. Most true is it that beauty is in the eye of the gazer, my master's colorless olive face, square massive brow, broad and jetty eyebrows, deep eyes, strong features, firm grim mouth, all energy, decision, will, were not beautiful according to rule, but they were more than beautiful to me. They were full of an interest and influence that quite mastered me, that took my feelings from my own power and fettered them to his. I had not attended to love him. The reader knows that I had wrought hard to ex from my soul the germs of love there detected, and now, at the first renewed view of him, they spontaneously revived, green and strong, 
He made me love him without looking at me. I compared him with his guests. What was the gallant grace of the Lynns, the languid elegance of Lord Ingram? Even the military distinction of Colonel Dent contrasted with his look of native pith and genuine power. I had no sympathy in their appearance, their expression, yet I could imagine that most observers would call them attractive, handsome, imposing, while they would pronounce Mr. Rochester at once harsh-featured and melancholy-looking. I saw them smile, laugh, it was nothing. The light of the candles had as much soul in it as their smile. The tinkle of the bell, as much significance as their laugh. I saw Mr. Rochester smile. His stern features softened. His eye grew both brilliant and gentle. Its ray both searing and sweet. He was talking, at the moment, to Louisa and Amy Eshton. I wondered to see them receive with calm that look which seemed to me so penetrating. I expected their eyes to fall, their color to rise under it, yet I was glad when I found they were in no sense moved. He is not to them what he is to me. I thought. He is not of their kind. I believe he is of mind. I am sure he is. I feel akin to him. I understand the language of his countenance and movements. The rank and wealth sever us widely. I have something in my brain and heart, in my blood and nerves, that assimilates me mentally to him. Did I say a few days since that I had nothing to do with him but to receive my salary at his hands? Did I forbid myself to think of him in any other light? Then as paymaster, blasphemy against nature, every good, true, vigorous feeling I have gathers impulsively around him. I know I must conceal my sentiments, I must smother my hope, I must remember that he cannot care much for me. For when I say that I am of his kind, I do not mean that I have his force to influence, and his spell to attract. I mean only that I have certain tastes and feelings in common with him. I must then repeat continually that we are forever sundered. And yet, while I breathe and think, I must love him. Coffee is handed. The ladies, since the gentlemen entered, have become lively as larks. Conversation waxes brisk and merry. Colonel Dent and Mr. Eshton argue on politics. Their wives listen. The two proud dowagers, Lady Lynn and Lady Ingram, confabulate together. Sir George, whom by the by I've forgotten to describe, a very big, very fresh-looking country gentleman, stands before the sofa, coffee cup in hand, and occasionally puts in a word. Mr. Frederick Lynn has taken a seat beside Mary Ingram and is showing her the engravings of a splendid volume. She looks, smiles now and then, but apparently says little. The tall and phlegmatic Lord Ingram leans with folded arms on the chair back of the little and lively Amy Eshton. She glances up at him and chatters like a wren. She likes him better than she does Mr. Rochester. Henry Lynn has taken possession of an ottoman at the feet of Louisa. Adele shares it with him. He is trying to talk French with her, and Louisa laughs at his blunders. With whom will Blanche Ingram repair? She is standing alone at the table, bending gracefully over an album. She seems waiting to be sought, but she will not wait too long. She herself selects a mate. Mr. Rochester, having quitted the Eshtons, stands on the hearth, as solitary as he stands by the table. She confronts him, taking her station on opposite side of the mantelpiece. Mr. Rochester... I thought you were not fond of children, nor am I. Then what induced you to take charge of such a little doll as that? Pointing to Adele. Where did you pick her up? I did not pick her up. She was left on my hands. You should have sent her to school. 
I could not afford it. Schools are so dear. Why, I suppose you have a governess for her. I saw a person with her just now. Is she gone? Oh no, there she is, still behind the window curtain. You pay her, of course. I should think it quite as expensive. More so for you to have them both to keep in addition. I feared, or should I say hoped, the allusion to me would make Mr. Rochester glance my way, and I involuntarily shrunk further into the shade. But he never turned his eyes. I have not considered the subject, said he, indifferently looking straight before him. No, you men never do consider economy and common sense. You should hear Mama talk on the chapter of governesses. Mary and I have had, I should think, a dozen at least in our day, half of them detestable and the rest ridiculous and all incubi. Were they not, Mama? Did you speak my own? The young lady, thus claimed as the dowager's special property, reiterated her question with an explanation. My dearest, don't mention the governesses. The word makes me nervous. I've suffered martyrdom from their incompetency and caprice. I think heaven I have now done with them. Mrs. Dent now bent over the pious lady and whispered something in her ear. I suppose from the answer elicited, it was a reminder that one of the anathematized race was present. Tant pis, said her ladyship. Too bad. (laughs) I hope it may do her good. Then in a lower tone, but still loud enough for me to hear, I noticed her. I'm a judge of physiognomy, and in hers I see all the faults of her class. What are they, madam? Inquired Mr. Rochester aloud. Cool, 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 cool. I will tell you in your private ear, replied she, wagging her turban three times in a portentous significant tree. But my curiosity will be past its appetite. It craves food now, asked Blanche. She is nearer you and I. Oh, don't refer him to me, mamma. I have just one word to say of the whole tribe. They are a nuisance. Not that I ever suffered much from them. I took care to turn the tables. What tricks... Theodore and I used to play on our Miss Wilsons and Mrs. Grays and Madame Joubert's. Mary was always too sleepy to join in a plot with spirit. The best fun was with Madame Joubert. Miss Wilson was a poor sickly thing, lachrymose and low-spirited, not worth the trouble of vanquishing, in short. And Mrs. Gray was coarse and insensible. No blow took effect on her. But poor Madame Joubert... I see her yet in her raging passions when we had driven her to extremities, spilled our teas, crumbled our bread and and butter, tossed our books up to the ceiling, and played a charivari. It just means played a naughty. With the ruler and desk, the fender and fire irons. Theodore, do you remember those merry days? Yals, to be sure I do, is spelled Y-A-A-S. Drawled Lord Ingram. And the poor old stick used to cry out, Oh, you villains, childs! And then we would sermonize her on the presumption of attempting to teach such clever blades as we were when she herself was so ignorant. We did, and Tedo. <laughs> Tedo! Tedo for Theodore? No, thank you. Sounds like pedo. Sure does. <laughs> We did, and Tedo, you know, I helped you in prosecuting or persecuting your tutor, way-faced Mr. Vining, the parson in the pip, as we used to call him. He and Miss Wilson took the liberty of falling in love with each other. At least Tedo and I thought so. We surprised sundry tender glances and sighs which we interpreted as tokens of la belle passion, and I promise you the public soon had the benefit of our discovery. We employed it as a sort of lever to hoist our dead weights from the house. Dear Mama, 
there as soon as she got an inkling of the business, found out that it was an immoral tendency. Did you not, my lady mother? Certainly my best, and I was quite right. Depend on that. There are a thousand reasons why liaisons between governesses and tutors should never be tolerated a moment in any well-regulated house. Firstly, oh gracious mama, spare us the enumeration. Oh, reste, we all know them. Danger of bad example to innocence of childhood, distractions and consequent neglect of duty on the part of the attached, mutual alliance and reliance, confidence resulting, insolence accompanying, mutiny and general blow-up. Am I right, Baroness Ingram of Ingram Park? My lily flower, you are right now as always. And no more need to be said. Change the subject. Amy Ashton, not hearing or not heeding the dictum, joined in with her soft, infantine tone. Louisa and I used to quiz our governess, too, but she was such a good creature, she could bear us anything. Nothing put her out. She was never cross with us, was she, Louisa? No, never. We might do as we please, ransack her desk and her workbox, turn her drawers inside out, and she was so good-natured, she would give us anything we asked for. They're so fucking stupid. <laughs> like, they're just torturing their employees. And they're like, she was so nice, she'd let us do anything. I'm like, because you were her meal ticket and her house. And also the like conversation about not having the tutor and the governess spend time together is still very much in the HR handbook today because that's obviously not just about a romantic entanglement. It's about having any sort of familiar relationship. Alliance, yeah. Shared text outside of that provided by the workplace. I suppose now, said Miss Ingram, curling her lips sarcastically, we shall have an abstract of the memoirs of all the governesses extant in order to avert such a visitation. I again move the introduction of a new topic. Mr. Rochester, do you second my motion? Madam, I support you on this point as on every other. Then on me be the onus of bringing it forward. Signor Eduardo, are you invoiced tonight? Donna Bianca, if you command it, I will be. Then, Signor, I lay on you my sovereign behest to furbish up your lungs and other vocal organs as they will be wanted on my royal service. Who would not be the Rizzo of so divine a Mary? A fig for Rizzio, cried she, tossing her head with all its curls as she moved to the piano. And is my opinion the fiddler David must have been an insipid sort of fellow. I like Black Bothwell better. To my mind, a man is nothing without a spice of the devil in him. And history may say that what it will of James Hepburn, but I have a notion he was just that sort of wild, fierce, bandit hero who I could have consented to gift with my hand. Gentlemen, you hear, now which of you most resembles Bothwell, cried Mr. Rochester. I should say the preference lies with you, responded Colonel Dent. On my honor, I am much obliged to you, was the reply. Miss Ingram, who had now seated herself with proud grace at the piano, spreading out her snowy robes in queenly amplitude, commenced a brilliant prelude, talking meantime. She appeared to be on her high horse tonight. Both her words and her air seemed intended to excite not only the admiration, but the amazement of her auditors. She was evidently bent on striking them as something very dashing and daring indeed. Oh, I am so sick of the young men of the present day, exclaimed she, rattling away at the instrument. Poor puny things, not fit to stir a step beyond Papa's park gates, not to go even so absorbed in care about their pretty faces and their white hands and their small feet as if a man had anything to do with beauty. 
as if loveliness were not the special prerogative of a woman, her legitimate appange and heritage. I grant an ugly woman is a blot on the fair face of creation, but as to the gentlemen, let them be solicitous to possess only strength and valor. Let their motto be, hunt, shoot, and fight. The rest is not worth a Philip. Such should be my device were I a man, whenever I marry. She continued after a pause, which none interrupted. I am resolved. My husband shall not be a rival, but a foil to me. I will suffer no competitor near the throne. I shall exact an undivided homage. His devotion shall not be shared between me and the shape he sees in his mirror. Mr. Rochester, now sing, and I will play for you. We call this a pick-me girl nowadays. Very pick-me. But of course, she has a lot of reasons to want to be picked. But she is trying so exceedingly hard. I am all obedience, was the response. So I guess so is he. Yeah, their mutual flirtation in this scene, like, it's so distressing in Jane's perspective, and obviously we're rooting for Jane, but were it not for that, they get each other's references, they're playing on the same level. Were it not for Jane, this would be enjoyable. Like, they both suck, but they're, you know, having fun with each other. I didn't really think she, like, objectively sucked up until she did that whole thing about, like, let him hunt fish and shoot. I was like, no, she sucks. Blech. Here, then, is a Corsair song. Know that I dote on Corsairs, and for that reason, I sing it con spirito. Commands from Miss Ingard's lips would put spirit into a mug of milk and water. Take care, then, if you don't please me, I will shame you by showing you how such things should be done. That is offering a premium on incapacity. I shall now endeavor to fail. Gardez-vous in bien. If you err willfully, I shall devise a proportionate punishment. Miss Ingram ought to be clement, for she has it in her power to inflict a chastisement beyond mortal endurance. Ha! Explain, commanded the lady. Pardon me, madam, no need of explanation. Your own fine sense must inform you that one of your frowns should be sufficient substitute for capital punishment. Sing, said she. And again, after touching the piano, she commenced an accompaniment in spirited style. Now is my time to slip away, thought I. But the tones that then severed the air arrested me. Mrs. Fairfax had said Mr. Rochester possessed a fine voice. He did. A mellow, powerful bass into which he threw his own feeling, his own force, finding a way through the ear to the heart. And their walking sensation strangely, I waited till the last deep and full vibrations had expired till the tide of talk, checkered an instant, had resumed its flow. I then quitted my sheltered corner and made my exit by the side door, which was fortunately near. Thence a narrow passage led into the hall. In crossing it, I perceived my sandal was loose. I stopped to tie it, kneeling down for that purpose on the mat at the foot of the staircase. I heard the dining room door unclose. A gentleman came out. Rising hastily, I stood face to face with him. It was Mr. Rochester. How do you do? he asked. I'm very well, sir. Why did you not come and speak to me in the room? I thought I might have retorted the question on him who put it, <laughs> but I would not take that freedom. I answered, I did not wish to disturb you as you seem engaged, sir. What have you been doing during my absence? Nothing particular, teaching Adele as usual, and getting a good deal paler than you were, as I saw at first sight. What is the matter? Nothing at all, sir. Did you take any cold that night? You half drowned me. Not the least. Return to the drawing room. You are deserting too early. I am tired, sir. He looked at me for a minute. And a little depressed, he said. What about? Tell me. 
Nothing, nothing, sir. I'm not depressed. But I affirm that you are. So much depressed that a few more words would bring tears to your eyes. Indeed, they are there now, shining and swimming. And a bead has slipped away from the lash and fallen onto the flag. If I had time, and was not in mortal dread of some prating prig of a servant passing, I would know what all this means. Well, tonight... I excuse you, but understand that so long as my visitors stay, I expect you to appear in the drawing room every evening. It is my wish. Don't neglect it. Now go and send Sophie for Adele. Good night, my... He stopped, bit his lip, and abruptly left me. God, Mr. Rochester sucks, but also like fucking hell, like Jesus. Also just does it for me. Just absolutely does it for me. Oh God, fucking cranks my shaft or whatever. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have any. I'm right there with you, Jane. But also like, that's the thing where it's like, he's flirting in public and now wants her to like witness it. And he's doing it to test her and like, you know, I've read this book enough times, I know what's gonna happen and like, I know that he, why he's doing it. Like, and that speaks to like such a small part of him that he would torture her this way just to see that she feels the same as he does. And it's just like, ugh. Well, he tortures her to make sure she is torturable. I know! <laughs> It's just agony to watch it from Jane's perspective. But it's also like he's used to clearly working with a more reactive audience, right? And I think Jane is so self-contained. He will keep pushing it and keep pushing it just to get any kind of reaction out of her, right? Such as saying, tell me more about how terrible governesses are. Yeah, he's such a dick. But also, I thought what was so interesting about the very last paragraph that you read, it's all dialogue and it's Mr. Rochester seeing her and he's like, I affirm that you are depressed. Like you're near tears. And then he witnesses a tear slide down her face but it's his dialogue so like suddenly we aren't in Jane's perspective we're in Rochester's perspective seeing the harm that he's created and like that dissonance is actually quite a narrative turn it's like he is also one of the only people that ever sees Jane so he's one of the only people that comments on her as an outside perspective because we have so much of her internality so much of what she gives us about herself and so to have this unvarnished view of her where she's crying but won't tell us that she's crying very interesting and uh also his just clarity right like up until the moment when she has a tear sliding down her face he doesn't have a lot of satisfaction he's like why are you pale why are you depressed and he wants her right of course to say because of you you make me pale and depressed and so he doesn't get any satisfaction right any like romantic swell until 
or allow he himself is not allowing himself to get satisfaction until she cries and then he says I would know what all this means if I wasn't worried about some servant walking by which means he probably would have become physical with her but in a fun way and to be denied that as a reader is now as ever very frustrating titillating the other thing I am struck by reading this chapter is that Jane is such an outsider to our current typical romance, historical romance set in this time period, right? We are much more invested in the titled, right, in the Eshtons rather than the heirs. And it's so interesting that so early on and like, you know, proto even, we get an outsider's perspective on these kind of celebrations. And now I think about like all of the romance novels we've read with house parties, right? And how the heroine always fancied herself an outsider. But Jane is a true outsider, right? She's holding a cold chicken in the shadows, levels of outsider. She's being like talked over as if she's a particular species of human who's like at once utterly dull and entirely horny which is an interesting way to frame anyone right like yeah it's just a really striking and so much dialogue it was really hard to read you did it really well it was a ton of dialogue and so many different characters speaking and and all of like the little notes where it's like blanche's sister sucks but she sucks because she's like a dull candle and her brother sucks in a similar way she's her clearly her mother's favorite like that has been made clear in this conversation all of these like very quiet societal moves that were given because of jane's outsider cast but also it's like really goes to characterize blanche and negatively Well, Blanche is such a clear parallel to her cousin John, right? One of three, the only one with any kind of like aggressive personality traits that are like immediately discernible. We also see like they have the same kind of mother, right? Overly doting. My best, my own on that one child, right? There's only one kind of big house that Jane can live in. And it's the one where she is put upon by her aunt and her cousin John. And even here in Thornfield, where I think she thought she would have a different kind, allowed herself to hope for a different kind of experience, even if it wasn't the one she truly dreamed of, is now being returned. I think that's exactly right. Like this is like a recapitulation of her childhood. And I think it's like deeply upsetting and wounding to Jane all over again. Does that make Rochester Bessie? Bessie said that she was a very fine lady and she knew herself to be. I don't know, man. I do love the way Rochester flirts with women, though. Both Jane and Blanche. I find myself very... Flirts with Jane is a stretch. Flirts at Jane. Flirts at Jane is much better, you're right. And it has these, like, weirdly intense, like, early 2000s emo... Super intimate, like... Yeah. Where are you? I'm so sorry. I don't care what it costs. We're going to buy the rights to that song. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We'll have Halloween all Christmas. He is a little like that. All right, any other thoughts on this chapter? No, thank you for reading to me. It was very pleasurable. (sighs) Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Well, with that, I would just ask that you go ahead and loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah!